This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. They're located in Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake. And they were founded by our friend Bob Forrest, Evan Haynes, Jared, and Bob. And Aloe was created with a mission to treat addicts with compassion rather than control. And I think that is a beautiful mission. These guys had been to other treatment centers and they were not satisfied with their level of care. So they tried to set up a better level of care, which I really respect because I've been to some treatment centers that didn't have great levels of care too. They treat co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. They um, make your detox as comfortable as possible, which is like the number one thing for me is a comfortable detox if I'm kicking anything. They have great amenities, including sound bath meditation, sweat lodges, surfing, and even equine therapy. Uh, If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get treatment, I strongly recommend aloe. This episode is also brought to you by CASL, which stands for Clean and Sober Love, which is the new dating app for people who choose to live a sober way of life. It was created by one addict to help another addict to date safely. So here is the fucking reality. You got clean, you got sober, you got a new life, and now you're ready to date. So where are you supposed to look? Tinder? Clean and sober love is the solution. Dating in recovery is real and worth considering if your shit is together. CASL, or Clean and Sober Love, is a platform where you can meet like-minded people all over the world. And if you're finding that there aren't enough people in your area, just join, and then more people will pop up. Have faith that suitable perspective mates will be available. And I said perspective mates, if you're wondering what I said. Go on the App Store or Google Play, and by the way, it is completely free. This episode is also brought to you by you guys in the Dopey Nation through the Dopey Patreon account. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. And if you don't know, there's a ton of shit on Dopey Patreon, and it's all free. I put up an episode like with Rich Voss that I didn't air. There's songs, bonus Andy Roy, all sorts of shit. So go there, check it out. If you want to throw a few bucks, that's great. Um... Also, if you want to get Dopey clothes, we got clothes at www.dopeypodcast.com. We got hoodies and long sleeves and shirts. If you want a beanie, I've got beautiful beanies uh, or stickers or snapback hats. You Venmo me. I know it's very complicated. You can either get clothes at www.dopeypodcast.com or just Venmo me at Dopey Podcast. And, uh, and you can get the latest in Dopey styles, especially just in time for the holidays. So that's all the ads. Stay tuned. Here's the fucking show. You feel like no one understands your affliction. When you feel like no one's home, so alone in your addiction. Well, if your deal lives left, then put your headphones on and walk to the right. Cause there's a nation out there, keep you safe. we 
welcome. Oh, no, that doesn't look good. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction and dumb shit. And I am Dave and I'm recording uh, on Long Island in my attic by myself. And I rarely do this. And there has to be a purpose to why I'm doing it, but uh, there is no purpose. We're just trying to change things up here. And first of all, I want to thank Alan from Ireland for sending in that amazing dopey theme song. Uh, I love it. Reminds me of like an old TV show thing. Let us know what you think. If you guys think you can do better, send a theme song in to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. It's weird because I got two theme songs from Ireland uh, the same week. I wonder if they're related somehow. There's a dude in a band called The Nth that's sending some stuff. His stuff is also good, but I want to hear the word dopey in a dopey theme song. He says he did, but what the hell do I know? I can be wrong. The thing about this theme song that really got to me, though, um, you know, I like all the schmaltzy stuff in the beginning. It really feels like cheers or something, but at the he talks about Todd and he talks about Chris and before he goes into the theme, the dopey theme, the if I'm not home, I'm out walking around theme, you hear me and Chris laughing. And, um, you know, this kind of stuff really affects me. Um, if this is your first time listening to the show, Dopey is a podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. It was created by me and my friend Chris, who I met in rehab. And Chris, uh, three years into the show, four and a half years into his recovery, relapsed and he overdosed and he died. And, um, so the show has a certain, uh, amount of obvious heaviness. And, and right before Chris died, uh, my other very, very close friend, Todd overdosed. So it's a lot of, uh, a lot of pain there and a lot of deep, deep sadness. And again, my life is good. I'm in recovery and my life is good. I love making dopey. I never considered uh, using when Todd or Chris died because they died and I like my life sober. I might have considered not making Dopey uh, because I didn't think it would be good or fun, but it turned out it's been both good and fun. But I saw this thing on the Dopey Nation Facebook group and it just kind of... uh, it made me sad. You know, I get messages all the time from people, mostly good messages. I love the show, but I still miss Chris, that kind of stuff. But I saw this in the Dopey Nation Facebook group, and he says, uh, I came to Dopey through This American Life, so I knew about Chris and Todd. I've been to many funerals over the years, so if I'm honest, that was part of the attraction to the show. That seems weird. I seem to like things that are real, and such a direct connection to overdose made Dopey more real than so much of the media around drugs and recovery. I've been intermittently binging on episodes, and a few months in, I am on episode 142. I find myself getting sad and frustrated that Dave didn't recognize what was going on, and I am about to lose Chris. Um, You know, the big lesson is I should probably not go on the Dopey Nation page, because it's like, this dude is sad and frustrated that I didn't recognize what was going on. You know... It's also weird where the line between, you know, entertainment and reality blur. And Dopey was entertaining, but it was definitely reality. And uh, I guess I'm, I guess the, the long and short of it is I'm very sad and frustrated that I didn't recognize it either. You know, I saw the end of Chris's life um, like he wasn't into the show. It didn't occur to me that he was using. It did not occur to me. Um, and when I hear about 
and then and then my friend, uh, dopey listener Tim from Philly wrote me and he said, uh, you should listen to this episode uh, where Todd called in. I think it was episode 84. And, and me, Chris, and Todd are talking about fentanyl. And Todd says on the show, you know, laughing, that uh, it's more likely that he dies from being overworked than he would die from an overdose. And I laugh and I make fun of him. And, and it's something that I would have said too. You know, it's totally something that I would have said too. And, um, and, and now it's so perverse to hear it. It's so painful. Like I tried to listen to it and I just, I listened for a little bit and I was like reminiscing about my friends and then it became like ridiculously painful and like, what a crazy story, you know? And that's, and that's the story of drug addiction. You know, it's the story of dopey, but it's the story of drug addiction. And if you guys are using and you make jokes about not dying because it doesn't feel like you're going to die, um, this is a real story. You know, these are two people who died within six weeks of each other who didn't think dying was a possibility. And I just wanted to say all that. You know, I was pissed when I saw the thing on Dopey Nation, but now I'm not pissed about it anymore. I, I just wanted to talk about it. Um, I miss those guys, you know. Uh, it's painful that the show goes on. It's painful to hear people missing him, uh, Chris, because it, make, you know, it makes me feel competitive, on the show, like, I'm not doing a good enough job, but I don't want to go there. It's, it's the bigger picture. It's the bigger sadness. You know, like, the show was such a fun time between the two of us. And it was, like, literally, the show was a documentation of our friendship, and it was also, it's a documentation of my recovery. I started making the show when I was four months in, and now I'm four years, and almost four months in. We're coming on... We're coming on the four-year anniversary in January of Dopey. You know, I got my, my four-year clean in, in August. And um, I just think it's all incredibly uh, sad, but also meaningful. Um, I shouldn't react to, to this kind of stuff, missing Chris, whatever. But I do, you know. Um, and I miss him. And I wish he was still alive. And I really miss Todd, too. And I wish that he was still alive. And I, I have to say that a day does not go by without me thinking about both of them and without seeing people on the street that remind me of them. And it's just like, I'm sure people out there who are listening know people who died and they have experienced similar stuff. And I think that's another reason why, you know, people love Dopey. I, I think it is very real. I'm glad people enjoy it. I'm glad people are entertained. I'm glad people are kept company. But the the real bond of all of us is that, you know, this addiction, um, either it cost us something or it cost someone we loved something. And now that it cost us Chris and Todd, we all lost that. So um, I just wanted to say that before the show. Uh, it was very exciting. We had Lily Taylor on this week, the famous, famous actress and lovely wife of Nick Flynn. And uh, here's her interview. Hello, and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I am Dave, and I'm in Manhattan, and it's very exciting. I mean, we've had some cool guests on the show, but um, I think you're better than them. And I, and I think you might almost be too good for the show. <laughs> we'll say that. It is a very, very, very award-winning, amazing Wait, actress. Y- what? you're talking about Nick Flynn. 
me better than Nick. I don't know if he's going to like that. No, Nick, <laughs> no, Nick is like classic dopey. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, old he is dopey. He's scrubby like I'm scrubby. <laughs> you know, sit, that's why I don't make a lot of friends these days and I made friends with your husband. So this is acclaimed actor Lily Taylor in the kitchen in my dad's house. Yeah. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Very cool. Um but you understand what I mean in terms of like Nick is obviously a brilliant writer, wonderful guy, super sweet, but he's scrubby. Yeah. Like I'm scrubby. He's scrubby. You know, you could see how we could probably sure. be friends. I, I have a scrubbiness underneath, I think. I'm in a suit. I'm in a nice little suit that I got at a thrift shop, which, but it looks very nice. You are like the the as you know, I grew up watching you in movies. Yeah. And the thing the first thing that you were in that caught me was say anything. And uh, she was she played Corey in Say Anything, who was Lloyd Dobler's best friend who worked in the guitar shop. Right. And she sang Joe Lies. <laughs> and, and everyone in my high school was obsessed with that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm sure you, get, you got that your well, whole life. I did, but you know, it's just we just had the 30th anniversary, so I had to write all these like um, notes to the thing that's coming out. And so I had to kind of revisit, remember some things. And so I was remembering, I had forgotten like some of the things with Nancy um, Wilson, uh-huh. who taught me the guitar, right? you know, from um, Heart. She was Whoa. in that, huh? Well, she she's Cameron's wife. Oh. And so she taught me um, the guitar. Anyways, it was kind of cool to go back and remember what that was like, because that was my second movie. So it was still, and it was like a pretty great experience because it was all my friends from Chicago. They were all my homies from Chicago, and we all went to L.A. and filmed that with this guy, Cameron Crowe, who had, was the guy who was, pretended he was a high school kid in Fast Times at Richmond High when he wrote that for Rolling Stone. So it was, it was just, it was great. And here we are 30 years later, and um, people still, like, talk about it. Well, Say Anything, like, I graduated in high school in 1992, so mm-hmm. Say Anything was a very important movie to my generation. Like, sure. And Lloyd Dobler was a very important character to guys like me. Of course. You know, these sensitive, again, scrubby dudes who, like, are trying to get something done and be earnest and be sincere, and it's like that movie really played to us. Now, um, our show is about addiction, yes. you know, and, um, and I heard you on Mark Maron. You were fantastic. Thank you. And, um, and you had 29 years this year. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you. I'll give you a little. Thank you. Yeah. Nice. Be, yeah. <laughs> um, and what I didn't, I heard a lot of stuff on Maron about acting and also like, like, uh, psychology and, and the way we think and, and bird watching, which I'm fascinated with also. Good. I have an Autobahn calendar if you want it. My dad's a science teacher. I'll give you his calendar. I'm sure you have it, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm, on, sure I'm you... on the board of Audubon. So you don't need my dad's fucking calendar? <laughs> I need the calendar. Okay. But um, I'm, I'm glad that there's an Audubon calendar here. <laughs> well, where I live, I live in eastern Long Island, and it's like on the Great South Bay, and, and I live in a nice house, actually, which is weird to say, and we have trees, and we have cardinals, and quails, and fucking... What are the big, crazy birds that nest on top of the poles? The ospreys? Are you by water? Yes, oh, ospreys. Wow. Like, oh, those are great. And it's like all of these different ecosystems kind of merge where we live. It's by this arboretum, Baynard Arboretum. It's very, oh, very oh. beautiful birding and plant oh life. Oh, my God. So I'm trying to soak it in. Babe, do it. You're right. You're in the, you're in the crux of it right yes. there. Yes. And there's nothing like those kind of cross habitats. 
Because you get, because you just said you got water, you've there's got There's salt land, water, got, there's fresh water, there's, oh, there's everything. You've got everything. Oh, I'm so glad. What a great opportunity. And uh, it's weird because like when we have a backyard and we have this old apple tree and in the morning I make coffee and, and kind of in between seasons you see so many crazy birds come in and go out and if you, and then there's wild cats that like patrol and probably kill, the, you have a, a bad face because the cats probably well, eat the yeah, birds. yeah, I like cats and I, but I don't like them outside. Well, they're they're like not anybody's cats. They that's the problem. They're well, that's right. And but um, cats, you know, if you get into cats, you're going into a whole other realm. It's as intense as abortion and Palestine Israeli stuff. What to take a stance on cats? Absolutely. We had a cat. Okay. We actually, when I met my now partner, wife, whatever you want to call her, she had a cat, and I grew up with cats. I like cats, but I'm allergic to cats. Mm -hmm. Okay. She. She had cats, but she's not really a cat person anyway. And when we had our first daughter, I like made us get rid of the cat because of all the myths of cats killing babies. And I didn't want a cat, so I made this Whoa, plan. Okay, I, okay. Have you never heard these myths that cats? Oh, it's a myth. You said myth. yeah, yeah. Okay, it's I, like I it's like that... an old wives' tale that cats will get into a crib and suck the life out of oh, a baby that, yeah. and that kind of thing. Superstitious kind of. Stuff. Did you have two cats or one cat? I had two cats in this apartment, uh-huh. but with her we had one. Because supposedly more than two. Is even better for the baby. The baby will like it. It's better for their immune system. Why? You've got probably more kinds of animal stuff happening in the house. So you, it's like how farmer kids are like the healthiest kids. Because they have all those weird germs running They're, all over yeah. the place. And they and so, get tough. Exactly. But, but I, anyways, you got rid of the cat. I didn't want the cat. Well, so, and like, like, like it. For, yeah. Regardless of what it would do, also cat hair and I have allergies and I just, I don't want cat hair everywhere. Sure. It makes me crazy. Sure. So we got rid of the first cat. And then me and and then I'm a terrible drug addict, so my wife left me with our baby to to suffer and to be a drug addict Good. because that was smart of and her. Reach the bottom, exactly. Good for her. And um and she got another cat. And I said and I was like, you probably shouldn't get the cat. I'm going to wind up getting you guys back, and I don't want the cat. Well, okay? tough luck. You come back, and then we'll talk about it. I got That's back, <laughs> and, and I love the cat. They named the cat Pawsey, which is a sad cat name because it. Because it was the pause in your yeah. time of being away, or no? Because okay. well, my daughter named it pausey because it has pause. Oh, pause! Yeah, oh, I thought it was like you were you were pausing as a as a partner while you were getting. Clean. Well, I always just thought it was like cerebral palsy. Like it was like a sad <laughs> cat name, and it was like palsy the cat. Um, but so they we got this cat, and I came home, and she got pregnant again. Okay. And I was like, let's get rid of the cat. You know, the other cat died. The old cat died. Was, and and they, they went, the old cat went to the in-laws. And I was like, let's get the new cat to the in-laws because you're pregnant. You know, this is a tradition. And they were like, no, we're going to keep the cat. So we keep the cat. And um, I have a, there's a reason I'm telling the story. I'm sure, okay. yeah. I, I, the question is, if, can I remember the reason? Um, the birds in the yard, the cat was obsessed. And he would come out and he would kill the birds and bring the birds in. And my wife was like, I don't like this. And I was like, don't let the cat go out in the yard. So eventually, we stopped letting the cat out in the yard. And that's when these other scary cats wandered in mm-hmm. and scared the hell out of poor Pawsey. Yeah. And Pawsey yeah. started spraying in the basement. Uh-huh. Which was Pawsey's ticket to ride to get out of there. Uh-huh. So now Pawsey's gone. And we have birds again and feral cats. And that's my story. And, and so Pawsey left because he was spraying in the basement. Spraying to a colossal degree. Like you walk in the house and it's Oh, just, that's awful. But I'm if sorry, you're yeah. not a clean person, and me and my wife are not particularly clean people, you can't have a cat. Because your house is just disgusting with a cat. Well, Nick, yeah, Nick feels that way. I I feel like if you just get used to just having a lot of little brooms around, for me it was more the cat litter. Do you have a cat? We, we had two cats. Now? 
No, they both passed. I'm sorry. But Nick didn't, didn't care for them. No. No. He felt like I did? Yeah. I put, actually, I bought, a, I bought a sign that said, no pets, that went on to his studio door. Oh, boy, you should have heard. And, you know, one of the cats got him back. Nick had his poems laid out on the floor of his studio. And the cat opened the door and scooted on all of the poems. Oh, my God. It's almost like it knew. He, he wiped his ass with the on, poems. On all the poems. Wow. That's yeah, like metaphor. Well, that's very poetic. Exactly. It is. And it's sort of like, you know, it's like, Nick, you put that stuff out. They're, they know. They know they're not liked by you. They're <laughs> going to get, they're going to come back at you. <laughs> That's funny. So, How did you meet Nick? Met him upstate. It was, I guess, a blind date. I don't know what the t- term is. I didn't know that someone was thinking of us to getting together, and he didn't know, and it was a dinner. So what's that called? It's like a setup. Yeah, setup without knowing it. Right. Yeah. And it was, just, was, it, was, it, was it a setup for the romance, or was it a setup just to meet? The woman who set us up thought she thought of each of us when she met him, she thought of me, and vice versa. And you guys were both single at the time, whatever. Yeah. So that's nice. And you were obviously in recovery. Oh, yeah. Was he at that point? No. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. And did it, did it, was it obvious to you that he had this thing? No. No, because he, has he talked about this? Yeah. Has he talked about that he was sort of saying he was in recovery and I think wasn't? He did, well... I never listened to the show, so I don't know okay. what he, he might have said. You know, Nick Flynn was, though, at DopeyCon, our first ever yeah, Dopey I event. Know. And I, think, I can't say that you can say whatever you want about him, but he was pretty, pretty loosey-goosey sitting over there yeah, in yeah. here. I don't know if that, if that gives you carte blanche to tell the story or not. Yeah. Let's tell it from your end. Okay. To be he, with somebody who's an addict and not in recovery in the beginning, and you're in recovery. Exactly. What was that like for you? Well, it was murky because I didn't understand exactly what he was, and because he wasn't in, in he wasn't going to meetings, but he wasn't using in front of me, and you know, being someone who kind of knows how to stay on my side of the street, I didn't ask him about what his deal was. I right. just. Um, because it doesn't it was none of your business at that it's point. not my business it's yeah I just didn't go there because that's whatever he's doing is what he's doing so and then he revealed that he had not been sober and that he was getting sober right and um and then you guys, when you had, and you guys have a lovely daughter, Maeve, from what I understand. Yeah. And Nick is always saying beautiful things. And I have to say, like, anything that I say about Nick that isn't 100% beautiful and nice, I, only because I love him. I think he's a great guy, and I think he's obviously brilliant. And, um, and I don't make a lot of friends. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, maybe, and maybe I make more friends than I realize, but it doesn't feel like I do. And he came out of nowhere, and now he's my friend. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with the program. And I think that has a lot to do with his personality. Mm -hmm. So, like, I have to say, I know Nick's going to listen to this. I think, Nick, you're a good guy. I appreciate you. (laughs) You know, I I don't want to be talking shit or anything. No, of course not. I wanted, I should have, I thought about dragging him in with you. Yeah. And I think he wanted to. Yeah. But I wanted him to ask me rather than invite him myself. Sure. And this morning he texted me. He's like, so is Lil coming in? And I was like, yeah. He's like, and he's and he was saying how he was listening to you on Marin and yeah. thought you were great on Marin. Good. And I was, I was, just, what I was saying to him this morning, what I was kind of alluding to you at the beginning, was like Marin's been on Dopey, um, and when Marin came on Dopey, it was like me begging him to come on, then him coming on, and and like some, some other names have been on Dopey, and it was like a lot of me begging, 
and like thinking like because they're in the podcast world or the recovery world. And with you, I, I just thought you were this incredibly successful and prolific artist, actor, and like you're almost too good for it because we're so stupid deep down. We love to be dopey. Like I like to put it down, but it's like that scrubby essence sure. of self-effacingness. And um, so I think it's cool that you decided to come in. Oh, yeah. And um, when you found recovery, which is a long time ago, you, yeah. you know, um, what, you, what I heard you say on Marin is that you just knew you were an alcoholic. Yep. But what was the kind of life what was it like, your life, day to day? As an alcoholic? Sure. Well, I think one reason I knew is my dad was a manic depressive and alcoholic. And then my oldest brother was a drunk. And then all of a sudden something happened to him and he did, wasn't drinking anymore. He got better. He got sober. He's 13 years older than me. Um, that was my first kind of, I just knew everybody in the family had problems. So I knew, I knew something was going to be going on for me when I was older because I could just feel like something was, um, off. Uh, and so I remember when I was fifth, I remember, um, uh, drinking in like behind like a friend's house. They had like a little shack or something and being excited about going back there and getting some alcohol. I remember I was smoking in third grade, hiding the cigarettes in this little little weird park thing, my friend and I. Um, it just felt like there was too much energy around these things. Um, energy like, like, what is it? What is it going to do to me? I can't wait to do it. Like that kind of energy. Yeah, and it's like, it's like I knew that like when I had, I knew that I didn't know what the language was, but I knew... I would say when I when I had that first sip, I knew that something happened to my taste buds. Like I knew something. First of all, I knew I was going to be a prisoner if I wasn't going to get any more after that point, you know. And I ended up just being, instinctively. You yeah, know. I just knew. It's not like I knew I'm off. If if I have that one sip, I'm off. I'm off. It's like it's like. And if I don't get more, and a lot of times I would. I was I was really concerned about people knowing I was an alcoholic, and so I would try to um, I would drink to the level of where who I was with, and a lot of times people didn't drink the amount I wanted, so I would leave and just go home. So I was a real private drinker. So you'd go home and you drink. I drank. I, right. I was an isolated drinker. Right. Yeah, because no one. I couldn't find the people that I want that drank the way I wanted to drink, and maybe I also was a little scared of those people also. You know, because if I w- went with them, it was it was harder to stay in denial. Whereas if I was home drinking alone, and I could read John Barleycorn while I was drinking or write, because I would write to Elky when I was drinking as right. a way of like a penance or like a way of like. What does that mean exactly? You'd write to Elky. Well, it was like it was like I was always trying to kind of control my drink because I wanted to try to drink for as long as I could. I had a feeling it was going to kind of stop at some point, and I was hoping I could take it as long as I could. So I thought, well, if I don't blow it so soon, maybe I can keep this going. So one, maybe one way to do this is, is, is if I'm going to drink, then I have to write. I have to write about it. We've got to get in there if we're going to fucking do this. So it was awful. It was really awful. It was like I couldn't even have fun. I wasn't having any fun. Come so on. I, I, my, I didn't have a big drinking career. Like my body like couldn't handle it. Like, I just needed to get out of myself, but like alcohol was not the path for me. Like I remember when I was in 
kid, when I was like 15 or 16, I was a waiter at a summer camp and I had no friends and I was incredibly alone. And, uh, and I befriended the European, uh, kitchen staff and at the end of the summer they and I never drank I always thought that people who drank were like fake and phony and like pretentious and like that was my thought when I was in high school uh in junior high school and I was like oh they drink and they smoke they're not really being themselves which was a really earnest honest thought at such a young age and it's funny because I totally went against that for the rest of my life basically um but I drank with these Europeans and I drank like 16 screwdrivers at the end of the summer and I blacked out and I got really just physically sick. And every time I drank, I would get sick. So alcohol like never became my thing. But I know that when I first got drugs and I first got weed and I first got pills, I just loved how it made me feel. And I loved the idea that, and I wanted to extend it also as long as I could. But I also like, I think... It was the sensation of it that that let me not think about myself and not be trapped in my head. And finally, there's something I can do that I can feel more free, you know. And it sounds like that's what what you're talking about too. Um, when um, when you found your like, what were some of the situations you found yourself in when you knew it should stop? Like you say, you wanted to extend it, but also you you wanted to get out of it. So yeah. what, what was that sensation like? Well, for me, it was more of a soul deterioration in that, first of all, I knew I was an alcoholic from like 15 or 16. I knew, I knew that I drank differently than other people. And yet I continued to drink. And that, that tension, I could not carry that for who I am with my, who, my spirit, could not hold that. It was, um, my denial, let's put it this way, my denial was not very thick. I didn't have it. I didn't, my dad, for instance, has had a lot of denial. Like, you could look at him and say, no, I, I see the alcohol. I know, I just found it in, he put alcohol in a gasoline can, if you can believe it. And then someone actually filled it with gasoline. Oh, no. I know, my brother and I were just revisiting that little memory. But anyways, we're like, we know we just found the fucking tequila in the gas can. We know you've got the goddamn alcohol, Dad. He would look straight at us. I don't. And he would maybe believe it. I didn't have that kind of denial. Do you know what I mean? Because like, you knew who you were because you knew who your father was. You were almost walking down the same path. Maybe so. Maybe so. And, and, and maybe, I don't know why some of us have a little more of that than others. I don't know. I might have a denial in another way. But around my addiction, I didn't. Me neither. And I was actually excited to be an addict. Like, it was an exciting thing for me. It was like, I, I grew up incredibly sheltered, and I grew up incredibly overprotected to super middle-class Jewish teacher parents, and I wanted to get out of that. You know, I want, and I felt like being an addict was freedom in a way, and it was real life, as opposed to, like, this very set-up life that I was living. Sure. Um, with you, if you, you know, if you saw your father's thing and you went down the same path, what was that like? So you mean, so what was my path that I went down? What I mean is like, at what point were you like, dad, there's tequila in the gas can? Had you gotten sober already or was that like, was that way before, way before? Okay. Oh yeah. Def. Yeah, definitely. Because so did your parents didn't drink? No. Right. So I think that a classic thing of like an adult child of an alcoholic or like the child of an alcoholic, the COA, (laughs) they're like, a lot of them will try to do anything to stop the parent, especially because, so my dad was dual diagnosis, so he was 
um, buying cars. I mean, he was, he was buying manic, Cadillacs. Manic yeah, right. he was. He was running naked down the street. I mean, it was unmanageable. So we were trying to do anything terrifying. we could. It was terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, we would um, you know do all that stuff. Um, I didn't. I didn't go to that level. As I said, my drinking, like a lot of people didn't know how bad my drinking was. Like they didn't think it was so bad. In some ways, I, I probably could have gone another 10 years externally. But I do think, I, I think for who I am, um, it was killing me inside. I probably would have offed myself in some way or something. I think the, what my trajectory was, um, I'm just too, too uh, sensitive. I just couldn't do it. No, I understand what you mean. Um, <clears throat> And when you found your way out of it, uh, you found your way out through 12-step meetings. I did. What Um, was the end of it, first of all? I don't want to jump ahead. Oh, sure. Um, Well, so that last year, what happened was I kept sort of blowing my little agreements with myself. Like, I would say no alcohol in the house, and then somehow it would keep getting in the house, like in different ways. And and then if it got in the house, I was like, okay, so we're only going to have, and I only have two, two glasses of the tequila, and then I'd have, then it was all finished with the bottle, you know, okay, we'll need to, um, I'm not going to smoke pot for X amount of day. And then I kept, I kept breaking all these agreements. What kind of pot smoker were you were like an everyday stoner? I started to smoke every day, but I, I didn't think that I was, but then I'm like, wait, you're smoking. Wait, if I don't, if you say don't smoke for 30 days, I can't do that. I couldn't do that. I didn't think I could join AA till I had 90 days clean. That's how mis- That's funny. confused I was. Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, yeah. And so I was trying to go 30 days without pot. And, oh no, I went 30, I was trying to go 30 days without alcohol. And then I was smoking pot every day. Right, because you're not drinking. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, so anyway, so that started all speed up that year before I, I, I quit. And, um, I just felt like I was getting into more fights with people. It was getting more unmanageable. I felt very confused inside. I felt like the noise inside was so intense. I just, it was like I couldn't think straight. I, everything was confusing. Everything was a mess. Everything was, every interaction was like, why is this so fucking weird, you know? And then, and I woke up feeling just like hell every morning. And then the night I, I was, this friend asked me to chamber music. I think I mentioned this on the Moran podcast. I said, sure, I'll go if you get high with me. We got high. I wanted to run because that was the whole thing. I was always running inside. I was like, whenever the truth would come up, I was like fucking out of there, you know? And I was like, shit, I got to get out of here. I'm trapped. I'm trapped. And I was like, oh, but if I leave, everyone will look. I can't, you know? And then it happened. I fucking was stuck and the fucking truth came. The whole thing I'd been trying to run from, you are an alcoholic. And it was like, bum. And it came within the music. Like real crazy, psychedelic, white light, yes. insanity. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. It came, and then the whole next time. I think you're very lucky to have had that happen. Honey, I, it didn't, it's not how I thought it was going to happen. It, absolutely. That was, that was, that was it. I was so t- silent the next day. I didn't say anything. Really. Because you just, were living with the echo of the moment. I thought I was just, I say, I say I was like, that that uh, Rodin uh, sculpture, the Thinking Man. Like I was just in different thinking poses all day. <laughs> like I was just thinking all day. I knew it was so big that it wasn't. I didn't even have to say anything to myself. Like, well, I think we're turning over a new leaf, or I think it's time to. It was nope. done. Inside it was done. It was done. It was profound. But I didn't want to go to AA. I hated AA. I was like, fuck AA, fuck God, fuck all that. And then I was about nine days. I'd gone to an Al-Anon meeting. Someone had invited me to an Al-Anon meeting. And I was like, get me the hell out of here. 
but it did feel right. Something felt right in there, but I also felt like a witch in church. I'm like, I think they're all talking about right. Me, but you I, were the thing. Yeah, I'm like, um, it's. But I thought, but something was interesting. I'm still like, no, no, no. But I knew I wasn't going to make it. And then a friend called me. She sent something about me, and she said, I have like 80 days sober. I said, oh my God, I'm trying, I, I haven't had a drink for 15 days. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And she said, go to Perry Street. And that was it. Perry Street. I, I've been to a lot of meetings at Perry Street. Great place, but they don't have time sharing. So I can't go to Perry Street anymore. I need time sharing too. But it's a great, for me, it was the first meeting I felt was the first time I felt like I stopped running. I stopped running. Well, that was the surrender. And I stayed for two meetings. And that was my home group. It was perfect because it was like a bar, but without the alcohol. Very loose and very, and it, what, something that strikes me about you is like, you do seem like a very serious actor. You do seem like very serious old school New York. And that's what Perry Street feels like. Yeah. It's hidden. It's in the West Village. Yeah. You walk in there and all of a sudden you're in something that's very real. Yeah, right. You know, and it's like, and it's timeless. You feel like it's the turn of the century in the city when you walk into that's that right. place. And I love that too. Me too. Um, I haven't been back for like 20 years. I mean, I, 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 I need timeshares. When I, I need a meeting, right, and I don't know where to go and I... Don't look at my phone. I'm like, well, I'm kind of near Perry Street. And I go in and I sit down and I, fi- I leave. I know. Like I sit for 20 minutes and I'm like, I just, because I, I just can't. You know what I mean? It's better for, it's better for the beginning. Just like midnight. But it's, it it's good its purpose. For, for some exactly. people it's perfect for. Exactly. I want to ask you something else before we get into the beauty of recovery. Because you were pretty successful still drinking. Like, sure. Like professionally successful. Sure. Uh, you were still drinking, obviously, during Say Anything and Mystic Pizza and, and Dog and Fight. Dog fight. Yep. And, and, like, so what was, how did the drinking affect the work? What was that life like as an alcoholic who was drinking? Right. So, well, that was the other thing is that I would. And these are some really big time movies with some gigantic, you know, stars or whatever you want to call it, actors, you know, huge. I mean, just so that the audience gets the, the scope. I mean, Mystic Pizza was Julia Roberts, Vincent D'Onofrio. I don't know everybody in the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Say Anything, obviously, John Cusack. Fucking Dogfight was River Phoenix. And and, and, I mean, and you know, you were among the the tall trees of of addiction and of acting. Sure. So what was that that like? Well, um, it was was painful. Acting for me, acting sober has um, has is um, it felt like acting using was like throwing pots and pans all over the place. Like it was, it was noisy. It was cluttery. I couldn't get to what I needed to get to. It was like throwing everything around like a messy room. Acting sober is like there's this, and as of course as I've gotten older, it's like a channel. It's like a like this flow where like the emotion comes up and it's like uh, it just it just comes up in a purer way and it doesn't hit all these obstacles, so it's it's really cool. It's so I enjoy the process a lot more. It's also scarier. Um, it's much you know they've up to, there's this thing called rap beer, which is like what they do at rap. Not as much actually anymore. They used to always have a big cooler of beer, and it's called rap beer when you finish the day of filming, and it's like. There's nothing like having a drink after you've gone through something difficult emotionally. But you find, you know, I, I would make a pot of coffee and just slam the coffee after a day's filming. 
after you had gotten clean or when you were still? When I was sober, right. everyone would go for the wrap beer, and I would, go, I would go home and make a pot of coffee and just slam it. Because it was like... That was my rap fucking just... Give me that goddamn coffee, you know. I just Isn't like, it so annoying though? Like they have this institution of having a rap beer at the end of the day. Half of the fucking crew and cast are fucking sick people, and this is the reward. And it and it doesn't change. You know, it takes know. everybody dying for it to change. I guess that's right. Um, now, when you were, I want to hear more about the actual like being young and and successful and alcoholic at the same time. Like like what See, was? I don't a ton of that story you were because at home. because yeah but like river um was at that time river was just drinking but i knew he had a severe allergy at that point i mean that kid was in a lot of pain drinking so much to the point that he um was very sick johnny depp i did i, I was just newly sober with Johnny doing this movie called Arizona Dream. We were like on the border of actually the biggest cocaine tunnel in Douglas, Arizona in 1991. Um, About nine months I was there filming. Johnny was drinking. Johnny was drinking when we started and had then stopped like a week into shooting. I was like 40 days sober in the middle of fucking nowhere and Faye Dunaway was my mom and Faye Dunaway had just gotten sober. Wow. She had been using for probably 50 years, so she was really insane. But I got sober, I got sober with a bunch of really nice guys, like um, a couple of Mexicans. It was a border town. A couple of old white guys. It was really cool sobriety. You know, you had to drive like an hour for, to the meeting. They would like drive anywhere to help someone get sober. It was that kind of shit. So Johnny ended up trying to not drink. So we were really connected in this cool way. And then Johnny, um, then we went to another location and Johnny just, we were at dinner one night, he goes, I'm going to have this glass of wine. I'm just, I have to. I'm like, okay. And so I, I, so we got the wine and we looked at each other. He goes, should I do it? And I said, it's, you're going to do it if you have to do it. And I said, he said, I'm going to do it. I said, bye-bye, Johnny. Bye, Johnny. And then that was it. He crossed over. That was, that was and, it. and then... And Johnny's like, Johnny's a really interesting example. And I, I will speak, if Johnny hears this. I'm, I'm sure Johnny Depp listens to every episode of Dopey. Johnny. We almost called the show Deppy, but we had to call it Dopey. Um, if Johnny is listening, Johnny, I do love you and, and call me if you need to. But um, John, Johnny's trajectory has been so interesting because he's one of those that's like, how does he keep going? And but and so like, but you know how they say it either ends with jail institutions or, it's like, Johnny, we're seeing in this past year, how it has stopped working, for him, but, Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, the beautiful work that's that Johnny has done while fucked up, you know, and very wealthy, very successful, a cool guy. He's also emulated long-term addiction. Like, that's his hero. His hero is Keith Richards. Exactly. And, like, these rock and roll idols. Although, like, Alice Cooper is one of his favorites, and he's been sober for, like, almost 50 years or something that's crazy. That's true. That's true. So he's seen both sides of it. And uh, I don't know anything about Johnny Depp except I like him. You know, when I was a kid, I loved him in 21 Jump Street. Oh, I know. Like, I, know I, I would right, go yeah. to the, the, the hair cutter and be like, can you make me look like Johnny Depp? And she's like, sorry. But, like, that was the, the, the vision, you know. And I, I've always had a soft spot for Johnny Depp just because of 21 Jump Street, I, strangely I enough. Um, 
and, and I'm trying to get my daughter to watch Pirates of the Caribbean, and I see him turning up at like Aerosmith at, in in yeah. Las Vegas, and I see, and he wants so badly to be this uh, rock and roll hero, which I can relate to. Also, I love playing music, and I, if I was Johnny Depp, and these guys wanted me to play with them, it's like, I'd do it. But like, um, yeah, if Johnny Johnny Depp, if you need help or you want to talk to anybody, Lily's here for you. And if you want to write us an email, it's at dopeypodcast at gmail dot com. What a we, funny thing! What a funny fantasy it is that that Johnny Depp is somewhere listening to Dopey. He could be. Oh, I mean, give me a break! No, no, really, you you don't have, you don't ever know. You no, really don't. It's just funny. No, you really. I seriously, especially dope. Come on, dopey. Dope. He was at the River Phoenix. That the Honey, he owned that club. That right. was his club. What was, that was that story. And that was a very that was an archetypal. That's a horror movie. That night was a horror movie. And that dude that gave River the Viper Room. The right. Viper Room. Right. And the dude that gave River, who was called the Angel of Death, actually that was his nickname. He was known to kind of look. I don't. I believe people get people use because they're using. I don't think someone can make you use. But there is something sort of. There was something very um, uh, intense about that story. The guy's name was um, the Angel of Death. He was known. The dealer was the Angel. Of Death. Yeah, that was his nickname. Yeah, he was known. He he. The last altercation, the last interaction he had with somebody's a house had got set on fire and somebody had died or something. Like this dude was really doom and gloom, friggin' scary. Bad. Yeah, like a horror movie. Right. And then River took took it that night, and that was the Viper Room. That was Johnny's room. That was Johnny's club, you know? Um, and by that point, I mean, the thing with when I heard River died, I wasn't surprised. Just like I wouldn't be surprised if, you, if I heard Johnny died today. You know, anyone who has an allergy who isn't treating it, it's it's all bets are off. I mean, anything could happen. Well, it's miraculous that anybody lives, really. I mean, like like last summer, you know, my my partner who did the show with me died out of nowhere, and uh, and one of my best friends died six weeks before him, mm. and and all of us, you know, had been taking uh, what's the word? Deadly substances. You know, you know, substances that can kill you anytime you use them, and you have people, you know, Johnny Depp or. Keith Richards or, you know, Keith Richards says he hasn't done heroin since 1985 or something. And I believe him. Like, why would he lie Mm -hmm. about it? But like people who, who dabble with these incredibly deadly substances, it's a miracle that they get to live so long Sure, because you don't know, especially now with this fentanyl. And even if you know where it's coming from, you don't know where it's coming from. So like, you know, and that's the other part of, um, I think that's the really weirdest double-edged sort of addiction is like, I know for me that I got into heroin because it comforted me. Sure. I got into heroin because it made me feel less anxious and less neurotic and more confident. And, and it gave me the feeling like I didn't have to care about anything. Sure. Which is the feeling that I've always wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, and that when I wanted my hair to look like Johnny Depp's mm-hmm. hair is because it looked like he didn't care about something mm-hmm. because his hair looked like that. As mm-hmm. stupid as that even feels to say. Mm-hmm. You know, and all I craved was to not care. And and I bet there's a ton of addicts out there who just want to not feel, who want to be void, who want to be numb. Mm-hmm. But they don't want to be dead. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and they're pursuing this sort of non-life and and, and it's fatal. You know, mm-hmm. it's like non-life, living non-life is fatal in itself. Mm-hmm. But when it <clears throat> kills you, it's like you didn't expect that to be the end of you or yeah. whatever. You know, it's just yeah. it's um it's sad. And um the other thing though, the the other side of it for me is that I got to 
experience a life. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I, I've only had uh, a little more than four years clean. And mm-hmm. when Chris and I started making the short show, I only had four months clean. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's not a lot of time, but it's like, you know, I got my family back. We had another kid. We bought a house. Like, and like, if I fuck it up now, the consequences will be so much more intense. Sure. You know, and I, I don't, and I say this like, I feel very confident to say that I don't see fucking it up coming up. Like, I really enjoy not using. Sure. When you mentioned um, smoking. Yeah. You know, like, that's something that always triggers me in a weird way. Mm. I stopped smoking like two years ago Mm. and I loved smoking. Mm. And I walk past people in the city and I smell cigarettes. And, um, And I always want to take one. You know, I always want to ask them for one. Sure. But I don't take one because. If, and it's my favorite lesson for all of uh, recovery for mm-hmm. me. If I smoke a cigarette, there's no one cigarette. Exactly. You know, a cigarette's so quick, too. It's so fleeting. Exactly. It's just gone as soon as you smoke it. And I would, I used to, I remember in the morning when I started smoking cigarettes, I would sit with somebody and smoke, and I would say to them, I don't want this to end. And sure. then I would make sure it didn't. Sure. You know, I would just stay with a cigarette exactly. all day. And like, so I don't smoke a cigarette because there is no chance. That it would be one. Or exactly. if it won, if it was one, it would be the least satisfying thing I ever did. That's right. You know? So I think that's interesting. I have a lot of notes that I'm not sure, looking at. Sure, don't worry. So you and Nick uh, Flynn, great you know, uh, artist, writer, who has three books coming out this year, which seems yeah. insane to me. Um, you guys are raising a kid. How often do you talk to your daughter about addiction? Um, Does it come up? It comes up, yeah. It comes up like with what's appropriate at, at that age, you know. It's like now she's almost twelve in January. Um, you know, it's like yeah, we can talk more about that. And um, but it's like everything with a kid has got to be tailored to where they are at that point, you know, because it's just not going to work if it's not. So um, I, I I kept it like in a general way. <laughs> I would talk about. What, what we were and now she knows more like she knows more about my dad she knows more about my allergy and that I go to a place that that helps um helps it I was with my daughter yesterday like uh, me and my daughter and our baby went to the mall last week we went to this store called Claire's. I don't know if you know. I've got yes. her. She got her ears pierced there. Yes, yeah. I think she mine did too. And Claire's is is a nightmare place. Yeah. It's just the most froofy kind yes. of girly place in the world. And you know, and I have the baby, and I, the baby's like seventeen months, and my daughter's nine, and the three of us are in Claire's, and um, and I'm addicted to the phone. So I have the baby, I have Nora, and I have the phone, and I look away for a second. I think I look at the phone, and I don't see anybody. And then I see Nora, and I don't see the baby. So I start screaming, does anybody see a baby? I'm from Manhattan. I don't mind screaming in the store, mm-hmm. you know. And, Nora, and, and the baby was right there. I just didn't see her. She was, like, around mm-hmm. the bend. And so I grabbed the baby, and my older daughter got so embarrassed, just so embarrassed, she, she, she stomped out of Claire's. Mm-hmm. Next to Claire's is this other store called Yojibo. Mm-hmm. Yojibo d- sells these gigantic beanbag furniture. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We walk in there and my daughter is transfixed with getting a Yojibo chair. Yeah. Okay. Which costs like fucking three hundred dollars. And like and I could buy a three hundred dollar chair, but that's sure. a beanbag, but I don't want to. You right, know? Right. So we leave this place and um and she's pissed at me 
for for losing track of the baby and for mm-hmm. embarrassing her in the store. But then as soon as she sees the beanbag furniture, she's all of a sudden she loves me again mm-hmm. because she's begun her manipulation to get the mm-hmm. beanbag from mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And my wife had been telling her, we need to have a piece of furniture for you in this place. And and, and Nora's kind of playing on that in me. And, I, mm-hmm. and also I like the idea of being a, a hero that can buy her mm-hmm. some big, stupid beanbag, sure. whatever. So I put it off and I say, we'll see. Okay. And then when I get home, our family agrees that we're going to get her a beanbag. Mm-hmm. So yesterday, I take my daughter to the Yojibo store. And this is, forgive this, the, the, the overlong nature yeah, yeah. of this story. The store isn't open yet, okay? And we go inside, and they're like, I said, when do you guys open? They said, at 11, and they slammed the door. And when we had gone in the first time, they said, are you going to buy anything? And I said, well, what does it matter if I'm going to buy anything? I'm in your store. My daughter's in your store. Why don't you just be cool? And that's why I didn't buy it the first time. Because sure. they were fucking nasty. Sure. So it happens again. And she goes, no, we're not open. We open at 11. It was 10.59, and they slammed the door in my face. And I got crazy. Okay? Sure. I, like, I lost my mind. And I said to my daughter, I said, Nora, I'm going to embarrass you now. And she said, she said, what do you mean? I said, they were incredibly rude, and I have to say something. Which... Who knows if I did or I didn't. Sure. In retrospect, I probably didn't have to say something. But at that moment, I was that would have been a great moment to call my sponsor or take a pause or decide it's not that important. But I had decided I was going to buy this thing, and I needed to deal with it head on. So we walk in, and I go off. I said, you know, we were here last week. You guys were really rude to us then. I was just outside, and I asked if the doors were going to open. And you said, at 11, and you slammed the door, and I'm here to spend my... Oh, and then I walked in, and she said are you going to buy anything today? And I said, how can you approach me like that? And, um, and I went off and I said, and they apologized. And I said, I don't think you're really sorry, you know, cause I'm crazy. I said, I don't think you're really sorry. I said, I think you want me to stop being angry, which sure. I will, you know, I sure. don't stay angry, but I just need to say this. And then I look at Nora and I said, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry that I'm yelling at these girls, but I didn't like the way they treated us. Mm-hmm. And I want, and I just want this to be taken care of. And my daughter starts crying. Mm. And I'm crushed, okay? So in the end, these young women who ran Yoji Bo felt very guilty because they knew they were nasty. Mm-hmm. And they bring my daughter a glass of water and a munchkin. And in the end, we buy the stupid $300 mm-hmm. beanbag and we leave. The point of the story is later in the day, me and Nora were having lunch. And all that, because we talk about Dopey from time to time. I've done Dopey for four years mm-hmm. and Nora's nine. So since I was, she was five, and I've tried to kept, keep it hidden because. Mm-hmm. It's so gratuitous with heroin and mm. drugs and Chris died and this and sure. that. And, and, our, and my wife was very close with my other friend who died. So mm-hmm. in the end, Nora was like, well, did they die from drugs? And it was like, they did. Yeah. You know, and I go to meetings and, they, and why do you go to meetings? And I, and I go because I want to stay uh, as good a father, good a daddy as I yeah. can be. And, I wanna, and, it, and it helps me uh, have a nice life where I can be the kind of person that you like me to be. Mm-hmm. And she says to me yesterday, um, long, long way to get to the end of the story. She says, um, Daddy, do you think if you didn't go to meetings, you would do drugs? You know? And I said, no, I don't think so. And, and she says, well, do they only talk about drugs at the meeting? I said, no, they talk about living a nice life. You know? So, like, when you guys deal with your daughter, like, how detailed is it? And, like, 
what what kind of stuff do you have to tell her about your exactly. history? Well, right. It's exactly what you how you sort of just described it, like the way you were like when she was five, and then now when she's nine, and it's sort of like when they're it's like they'll give you information by the questions they're asking, with what they can handle. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like. At six years old, would I say, uh, you know, people shoot, shoot, take a needle and put it into their arm and then they get, you know, no. Or like, uh, you know, but now it's like when we see someone smoking pot on the street, why do they smoke pot? What does it do? Well, there's sometimes people take drugs that are not prescribed by a doctor that um, help make them feel better. Sometimes these people could really use doctors drugs that are prescribed by a doctor, but they, they aren't. And so they're using something else to make them feel better. Sometimes they just have an allergy, an allergy like people are break out in hives when they eat strawberries. But she, she's 11. So we're getting to that place where they're 14. I mean, like I didn't smoke weed till I was 17. How old were you when you first smoked weed? Um, probably 11 or 12. Okay. So you're at yeah. that age. Yeah. Oh, she's, she's at the age where she told us a friend of hers, says she'd smoked pot and you know we have a very 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 open honest i i feel like she will she will let me know if or nick know if something's going on and yeah and it's funny also like because all of the normal people out there that can smoke pot or drink and it's not like the end of their life. It's not the beginning of an ism. Even if they're children, it's not necessarily. Right, exactly. So it's like, it's just so weird, you know, like where somebody's good time or like just the idea of calling it partying. Like it never, I was never a partier. Like I never was like, never, Sure. you know, but like, I know that other people are and sure. I know that that's okay for them. Right, you know? exactly. I, I just think it's, um, it's funny. I want to play a voicemail. You want to listen to a dopey yeah. voicemail? Mm-hmm. It is from a doctor in Australia trying to cop heroin in Prague. Okay. Okay. Hi, I'm Lucy. I'm a recovered heroin addict. I'm a doctor. I live in Australia. And I'm going to tell a story about scoring in a foreign country. So it was about 23 years ago. I was traveling around Europe with only just enough for the ticket to get there and I loved the challenge of buying drugs overseas. It was Prague that I was hanging out in a shitty hostel with an alcoholic who was the son of a fairly well-known TV celebrity chef back then, 20 years ago. And in the daytime, because he was drinking, I wanted to go out and get my own excitement. So I, I was seeking out the seedy parts of Prague. And it doesn't take long for you to spot the people that are milling around. They're not working. They're holding shopping bags, but there's no shopping in it. And they seem to congregate around toilet blocks and places where free stuff and free services are available. So I watched them for a good two hours, which is how I used to do things. If I I didn't have a regular dealer, I would just watch people. And I thought it should be pretty easy. All I had to do was ask them for heroin. 
Unfortunately, in Melbourne, it's much easier. All you have to do is raise an eyebrow at a dodgy-looking young Asian man, which is part of the reason why I find it very difficult to uh, look dodgy Asian men in the eye these days. It's particularly triggering. Sorry. Just is. And so I thought, I'll try, just ask her. I can't use vernacular. I can't use colloquialisms so I would just have to ask her outright for heroin I went up to this lady and I approached her said hello in Czech and she said hello back and then I said heroin like that because I didn't know how to ask do you have and she stopped and she's like huh heroin she's replied yeah heroin went, okay good and then I wrote down a few numbers um well no she I wrote down K which was the currency in uh the Czech Republic at the time it was way before euro had um streamlined itself through the country so I put down a K and a question mark and handed her my little booklet. And she took it and she nodded and she scribbled down a a variety of numbers for me, ranging from 10 to 200 karunas. Um, I picked the mid-level size. It was equivalent to maybe 20 bucks, so I figured I couldn't go wrong. And she was someone who had been staying put. She didn't look like she was a junkie scoring and she didn't look like a bad dealer that was leaving the scene straight away so I figured I could trust her she went over to her partner and he gave her a tiny little palm sized paper envelope and handed it to me it was a little thin but I figured I didn't really have much choice so I took my little envelope and put it in my pocket but then I realised I don't have anything to inject myself with. So I had to write down and scribble another question mark and draw a syringe. But thankfully, the universal language of addiction um, meant that she knew what I was talking about and she pulled one out of her shopping bag and gave it to me, which was perfect. The only thing I couldn't really make on my own. And so I enjoyed the next few days in Prague pretty much sitting uh, trying to write stories but nodding off and then an enjoyable bus ride to Berlin that's how I enjoyed my drugs going on the bus but that's just one of the many stories of scoring in a foreign country I just love to get um, the audience's little dopey stories in there. Yeah, of course. And she's in recovery, this woman in Australia. And uh, I think it's cool, like, that there are people listening all over the world. Mm -hmm. And I know that they listen because they feel attached to the sort of, like, down-to-earth thing that we do. You know, the, the sort of, like, you know, the point of dopey has been... At first, the point of Dopey was just for me to laugh with my friend, and then it turned out people felt like kept company by us, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew because of that, and I think this is an example of that. They mm-hmm. want, And I think the audience 
no matter how, I don't know the percentages of people in the audience that are clean and people that aren't clean. I just know that the show needs to have stories of those times in order for it to be mm-hmm. uh, right. Like I, th- yeah. I just think it's important. Um, I don't know why I had to bother you, you and know, to hear the, what it was like. Yeah, the, what it was like. Yeah, what it's and what it's like now. But you need the what it was like also. Right. She didn't give us a what it's like now, except that she did say she's a doctor in sure. Australia. I imagine her living in a really nice place and mm-hmm. having a really mm-hmm. nice life. Um, so yeah, that was a dopey story. Um, and I, I heard when you were on Marin that you were talking about some of your dalliances with with drugs, and you talked about. A lot of weed, like you mentioned, mm. and you said time to time cocaine. Like how, how often was cocaine involved? Well, a lot because, um, you know, I live in the, in the 80s. It was, um, you know, cocaine time. And I lived in a very wealthy area. We didn't have money, but a lot of my friends did. Like really wealthy. And so one of my friends, her dad had a bowl of cocaine. Because really? he worked on, he was so rich. It was like I don't even know what he did, but they were never there. The parents, she she was a deadhead. She became a deadhead. But um, so we did a lot of cocaine because, particularly, two friends were just loaded, and they could always supply. And um, or I would like take money from my parents, and and I also done some voiceover, so I still had a little money saved up. And um, but the problem with cocaine was I felt very suicidal coming down off it. So I couldn't, I really needed that pot to help balance it out like at five in the morning or I would, I was in pretty bad shape. Um, and that started to um, kind of get worse. So I just stopped doing it because I felt like I was getting too close to to death doing cocaine. And when you also came up uh, in the early 90s, that was kind of like the resurgence of heroin. That was kind of that era, like it when was. you're talking about River Phoenix and Johnny Depp and kind of Seattle and, and that sort of, it was a time Kurt, where heroin yeah. became big and you were really becoming big at the same time. Um, Never did, did heroin. Right. Did you notice it around your contemporaries? I, I absolutely did. And, and I mean, it was more like, not a, not a ton of actors, like, no, like theater actors weren't really doing it. Also, you, you remember I'm in New York still doing a lot of theater, too. And it's like, uh, not a lot of theater actors do heroin. Um, and a lot of the, I don't know, there wasn't, it was, it was more like um, in the Lower East Side, um, rock, in the rock world, for sure. Um, do you and, think that theater actors don't do dope because they have to work every night? And they won't, it's like... I think it's harder. I think it's harder to, yeah, eight shows a week is hard. It's like a marathon. It's like you have to be kind of fit in a way, like in a, not in like obviously in a marathon way, but in a, another kind of way. And the show must go on. I mean, you have to be at that theater. You've got to be ready. I think heroin is just too risky. It's like, now if you're an addict, you know, obviously risk doesn't, that doesn't always enter into it. But, you know, maybe the heroin addict just is like, I'm not going to be doing theater right now. I'm going to do something else because it will work better for my lifestyle. Right. My heroin lifestyle. No, that makes sense. And I never did heroin because I felt like if I did, just like I'd never done acid, I felt like, oh, I'd done one intense drug, ketamine, and um, I met met a person in in, um, Utah, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to do Special K. It was back then, and he had a friend who was a nurse, and she stole it or something, Uh and we met just to do Special K, and I'll tell you, man, it's like... What was the story? Give me the whole setup. Okay. I, like, I like these kinds of friend, stories. I'd met this friend. I went and 
worked, I went and fought for those redwood trees in, um, in the Pacific Northwest in, with Earth First in like 90, 90 or 89. And I was like three, three nights in the middle of those redwoods destroying that equipment, the equipment that, you know. The hardcore eco-terrorist. Yeah, kind of it was thing. like, stu- it was like, it's you great. know, democracy is messy. This it's is like, great. yeah, I was it's figuring great. it out, Come on. right? Yeah. I know. Um, so I met the, this guy there and he was like, he, I was smoking pot with him a lot and he was like, he was like, so do you want a rendezvous in Jackson Hole? And I can, I have a nurse friend who can get a special cam. Like, I'm down. Let's do this. I met him in Jackson Hole and we did the special K and I vomited. Uh-huh. And then I laid down on the bed and then I became, then the magic, a, car, a Persian carpet went in front of me, like a magic carpet. And then, and then I went, it took me back to the amoeba. And then I went through time. Wow. Yeah. But then when that wore off, I felt sick. And then I wanted alcohol. And he actually um, said that he felt like I had a drinking problem at the end of that weekend. Wow. I know. So the guy who brings you the ketamine. Yeah. And then he's going to call you out at the end of the weekend. Yeah, I know. Just because like, and I was like, it was like, I think it was Kahlua. Like that was the best (laughs) I could get. I'm like. Anyways, um, so that was the only hard drug I did. I did a lot of mushrooms, but I didn't do acid because I had a real fear because my dad was in a lot of psych wards my whole life and had shock treatments and stuff. And my dad would tell me, he would say, don't ever do the Valium, don't ever do the acid because I felt like I, and also I grew up, my older brothers, their friends had done PCP, like Angel Death. That was the only drug I didn't do. Yeah, I, I was like, there was like, I grew up in that Go Ask Alice, you know, uh, I, I felt like, I might cross over and not come back. And I felt with with heroin, it just felt like I might just go away and just not. So I, those were two things I just was like, try to hold off on those if you can. I hear you. But the interesting thing is that your your ears perked up to try ketamine. Like you, Special K, I like know. Like why? What do you think it was? Well, it was be- like... Because something about the ego. Because uh, to me, it, 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 it clicked in with my psychology stuff because it's the removal of the ego. Right. That's kind of what it is. And so um, it, it just felt like, oh, that could be kind of interesting. I could get into some kind of unconscious thing or something. Well, it's a very crazy drug. I, I, I did ketamine on purpose one time, and uh, I just took a line of it off somebody's hand. I was in a, it's like I, I, was, I had a very small time producing TV job when I was a kid before my addiction really kicked in. And I was like at some weird place and some dude was trying to sell me a ton of weed and the weed was really bad and I didn't want to buy it. And he goes, oh, do you want to try some ketamine? And I was like, sure, I did whatever. And he put it on his hand and I was in the back of a big limo and I took a line off the back of his hand. And when I tried to get out of the limo, it hit me immediately and I fell out. Like I opened oh. the door and my whole body just fell oh out of the God. thing. And I landed on the street and I, I really liked the feeling though. I really liked, because it, took me out of everything um i fast forward many many years later to i had a when i was totally full-on a heroin addict my dealer was bringing me a bunch of dope and then it was hitting me really weird and he told me it was ketamine oh boy and like i would take i would you know shooting it and i would shoot the ketamine um and i didn't care because i liked how it made me feel i would i fell out of the couch and, and I'm not a flexible person, but my body would be so limber on the ketamine that I did a forward roll off the couch and I landed on my back. And I just thought, <laughs> I thought it was hysterical. And the guy, the guy was just like, I'm going to kill this guy. And I was like, well, it's not that bad. And I kind of enjoyed it for that weird sort of run. Um, 
I want to respect your situation. You have a you have voiceover work to be done. Yeah, hopefully. What do you want to do? What? What, what kind of? Yeah, what are you looking to do? Anything that'll give me some money. Right on. So yeah. Disney, if you if you need somebody, come on Disney Plus or the new streaming. There's plenty of work. There's come plenty on. of work. Lily can do. Uh, Lily likes cartoons. You want to be a seal or something? What do you want to be? I'll do anything. Just give me some. Give me some. Uh, give Lily some money. Some cash. Give her some cash. Cash me on the outside. All right, Lily. Thank you so thank much you. for coming. It was thank such you. a treat to have you, and I. I Thank, Thank you. you. All right, cool. Okay. So that was the legendary actress and friend of the show, Lily Taylor. And uh, I love that she came on. I think it's awesome. Uh, I just wanted to uh, do a couple like little dopey business at the end of the show. I want to thank everybody who participates. First, obviously, Lily Taylor. I want to thank the dude, Alan, from Ireland. I want to thank Cormac for doing Reddit. I want to thank Sam for putting in so much hard work and making the show every week. I want to thank the fucking Facebook guys, Andrew and Catherine and Leah and Paulina. I want to thank uh, everybody who contributes to the show and who sends me information. I think it's great. I got this little note. It's from Kira. She wrote, hey, Dave, so excited for you in the show. What show we be on the lookout for? How about a birthday shout out for this super fan? So happy birthday to Kira. She came by Katz's and left me a pair of socks, uh, TV episode wearing socks. Like, I can't wait till the next episode kind of thing. And she also left me a box of oatmeal chocolate chip cookies, which is like, I think is like the holy grail of cookies if they're done right. The problem was that the idiots that I work with put the cookies and the socks aside, didn't tell me about them until like two weeks later. And the cookies were two weeks old. And I think I was full when I get, I got them and I offered them to the guys at the back counter and they like laughed at me and I was going to eat them anyway, but they were, they shamed me into not eating Kira's two weeks old cookies. So I didn't eat them, but thank you, Kira. I, I really appreciate it. I love everybody who gives me stuff. It's the best. Some other dude sent me Grateful Dead socks, which I love. Uh, and I really appreciate that too. Um, I'm going to read a long, dopey email before we go, just so you get a real dose of the dopey. This is from a woman named Amber, and she says, Love the podcast, but miss Chris. Hey, Dave, my name is Amber. I started listening to your podcast a few months ago. When I found you and Chris, I felt like I finally found my people. I actually started listening after Chris died, but I didn't know that he had. So after a few weeks, I went to your Facebook and found out. It could have been anyone, but why him? This disease never discriminates. He was one of the good ones, so extremely smart and conscientious, a tortured soul like all of us, truly afflicted. Spending every day trying not to wake the sleeping beast inside, I'm telling you like he was my friend. Listening to you guys every day makes me feel like I know you, though. I'm so sorry you lost your friend. Well, friends, Todd, too. You are so very strong for staying sober, and I admire you for that. I wanted to tell you something funny that happened to me the other day. I was listening to your podcast on my phone and had it in my pocket. All of a sudden, you and Chris sounded high as fuck. I listened for a good 20 minutes like that, and I thought either you two were high or I was losing my mind. Well, it was neither. I looked at my settings, and somehow, while I was in my pocket, I pushed the .5 speed button, which is half speed. Seriously, that button should be called the dopey button, because it really sounded like you were high. Anyway, I'll tell you a dopey story you may enjoy. So, when I was in my 20s, my ex and I ended up homeless, 
because I started using the condo and car, which was a 2001 Trans Am WSX, when I was in my 20s. My ex and I ended up homeless because, oh, shit, uh, they used the payment for pills and heroin. He didn't use it all. He didn't even drink. He was working, but most of the money went to my drugs, then the rest to stay somewhere. So we ended up at a motel in Columbus, Ohio. So while he's at work, I'm out uh, running the streets. No, I was never a prostitute. I was usually begging for money when hitching rides to the west side where I copped. I met this guy who was the maintenance guy for the hotel, and he kept hitting on me. I had no interest in him other than what I could take from him. Turns out he does maintenance on the whole motel and lives in a room of his own. It was like a live-in apartment on the property. He had it fully furnished. It had a kitchen, main room, with a couch and a bed, dining table, and a bathroom. He had decorated it really nice as well. So I got to hang out there, and he pulls out a crack pipe. So I smoked with him but explained that I'm a heroin addict. So I managed to get money from him that day to cop heroin. Plus, he let me use his place to fix. I started hanging with him every day for two weeks straight. When he was off work, I would smoke crack with him, shoot my dope, hang out. Then I go back to my motel room with my boyfriend. I know it's fucked up, but I was sick. My boyfriend stayed with me because we had been together since I was a senior in high school, and he knew that somewhere inside of me was a decent person that loved him. I didn't sleep with the super, the maintenance guy, but I could tell he was smitten. So I used up all his money by smoking all his crack and taking his paychecks to get tar. So one night we were at the motel and we were broke. My boyfriend wouldn't give me any more money, so I came up with a plan to rob the motel. I convinced Christian that I really loved him, and Christian's the maintenance guy. I didn't want to say his name. I convinced the maintenance guy that I really loved him and can get and and if he could get a lot of money, I could get a car and we can run away together. So this is a fucked up story. So we waited till one a.m. when the clerk uh, up front was out back smoking a cigarette, and where there, the cameras wouldn't see my car. I took my boyfriend's uh, two thousand and one Trans Am. All of a sudden, I see him running out. Oh shit! Hold on. So we waited till 1 a.m. when the clerk up front was out back smoking a cigarette and Christian went in and grabbed all the money from the motel's register. It was about $850. I had parked around the side where the cameras wouldn't see my car. All of a sudden, I see him running out and he jumps in the car with a big smile on his face. I take off burning rubber in excitement and we head to the west side. Our plan was to get $400 of crack and $400 of tar and have $50 left for food and gas. So I stop at the gas station, explain to Christian that I'll have to drop him off a street over because my dealer wouldn't serve me if I have someone he didn't know with me. Christian gets pissed and says, you're going to leave me. I left all my stuff behind and have no job or home now, not to mention they have me on camera robbing them. So I burst into tears, looked into his eyes, and grabbed his hands and held them in mine. I told him that I would never do something that evil, and I loved him. And if he didn't trust me, why were we running away together? What kind of person do you think I am, I asked. He calmed down and apologized to me. I told him I'd, I swore I'd cop and pick him up right back. Then we're home free. We can get fucked up and do whatever we want. So when we head to my dealer, he gave me the $800 and jumped out when I told him we were close. I told him I loved him and I would be right back. I go to my dealer's house and buy $400 worth of tar. That's all he had on him. And I get back in the car. I look in the passenger seat and see Christian's uh, wallet with his ID and the last $50. He dropped it, I guess, or he thought I wouldn't steal his wallet, that I'd have to return it if I had his wallet. Maybe I'm not sure. 
I go the opposite way. I came in and head back to the motel, chucking the wallet out the window on my way. I just left him in this unfamiliar place with no money, no wallet, and nowhere to go. I sure hope he had friends or family. When I get to the motel and the cops are there, they have his door open and are going through all of Christian's things. I about shit my pants when I get out of the car. I was approached by a police officer asking if I had seen anything out of the ordinary this morning. I told them I saw nothing. I walk, I get out of, uh, I get to my room and I get high and I take my boyfriend to a nice breakfast with the motel money. I was living it up for about a week, shooting dope all day until all the money ran out. We left the motel and I never saw Christian again. I don't know what happened. I don't know whatever happened to him. I feel bad to this day, but that's just how sick I was. I last shot dope January 9th, 2011. After I got sober, I struggled with anxiety and depression, although I haven't shot dope. I relapsed on Xanax. It was prescribed, but I used it like an addict. So now I have five months clean. I'm married and have two little boys. I went back to school and made the dean's list last semester. My family is so proud of how far I've come. I thought I would die with a needle on my arm. It turns out that wasn't my story. If I can recover, anyone can. Toodles, Amber. All right, Amber, thank you for the email. And I have to say that might be the worst story I've ever heard. It's just so terrible, you know? And I have to say, if you guys are in this situation now and you you coerce some unassuming crackhead maintenance man to fall in love with you and you convince them to rob the establishment that they work in only to give you all of the money and the dude or woman leaves their wallet in your car, I beg of you, just put the wallet in a mailbox. Just hope that this motherfucker, this poor woman, whoever it might be, gets their shit back. And Amber, I, I, I don't say this with any judgment. I'm so happy that you're sober and that you're doing well. What a crazy fucking story. And how stupid is Christian to fall for that shit? What self-respecting drug addict is ever going to put themselves in that situation? But I do appreciate the story. If you have a story, please send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Send in voicemails, send in emails, listen to bonus material on fucking Patreon. Look for bonus dopey interview episodes to possibly pop up during the week. Um, Follow us everywhere. Do the next right thing. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious, and it's just gotten me through some really hard times. And Though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, I really like Dave's song. And I'm going to do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. It's just on my phone. And, uh, sorry about the banjos. Things hard to keep in tune.
up in the sky Watch as airplanes just pass me by And I wanna see a Learjet liner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive I wanna be good so bad y'all hear this makes it through the uh, big inbox emails feel free to play a clip on the show if you want I, if not I know it kind of sucks alright uh, really appreciate it thanks y'all